Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when someone is on trial in a court of law, there are two legal teams involved. There is the defense, and then there is the prosecution. Uh, The defense team represents the accused person, the person on trial. The prosecution, on the other hand, tries to show that the accused is guilty of the crime. And both legal teams bring forward evidence, the best evidence they can, to prove their case. Now, it can happen at times that one of the legal teams unwittingly helps the other side. For instance, the prosecution might bring forward evidence that actually ends up helping the defendant. Uh, One famous example of this is the O.J. Simpson case way back in 1995. Perhaps some of the older members here remember that trial. The prosecution had O.J. Simpson try on a pair of gloves that were found at the murder scene. The defense lawyer, Johnny Cochran, famously told the jury, if the gloves don't fit, you must acquit. Well, the gloves didn't fit, and the jury did acquit. Now, a similar thing should have happened in another famous trial, the trial of Christ Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Now, let me clarify here, I am not equating the trials of the Lord Jesus and O.J. Simpson, but what I'm saying is this, the evidence on display at Christ's trial should have helped the defendant, our Lord Jesus. See, the prosecution in this case were the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the scribes. They accused Jesus of a number of things, claiming, uh, they accused Jesus of claiming to be the Christ, the King, but they were saying clearly he was not. And he was trying to promote some kind of treason. And since in their minds, Jesus clearly wasn't the Christ, he deserved to die. And to die the most gruesome death of all, crucifixion. But there's a great irony here in our text. The irony is that the trial itself proves that Jesus was indeed the Christ. And so instead of crucifying him, the Jewish leaders, Pontius Pilate and Herod, and the entire crowd of people should have bowed down and worshipped him. That brings us to the sermon theme. The evidence at Jesus' trial proves that he is the Christ. It proves this by showing that Jesus is, first of all, sinless, second of all, that he's high priest, and finally, that Jesus is king. So the Jewish religious leaders wanted to put Jesus to death. And they wanted this more than anything. But they knew that they could not kill Christ all on their own. The Romans were in power, and the Romans would not allow the Jews to perform an execution. And so that's why the Jewish leaders brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate, as Pilate was the Roman governor over Judea. Now, in order to crucify Jesus... They needed to convince Pilate 
that Jesus was worthy of death. And to do this, the leaders made three accusations against Christ. Number one, this man is misleading or subverting our nation. Number two, he forbids us to pay taxes to Caesar. Number three, he also identifies himself as Christ, a king. Now, what do we make of this? Does the prosecution have a case here? Should Jesus be condemned? Well, the first two accusations are easily dealt with. They are simply false. Christ was in no way misleading or subverting the nation of Israel. Far from it. And they don't even explain how Christ was doing this to Pilate. The reality is Christ was conforming the nation to the truth of God's word. Far from misleading them. And moreover... Christ never forbade anyone from paying taxes to Caesar. In fact, it was the very opposite. Just a few chapters earlier in Luke's gospel, we read how Christ taught the people to pay taxes to Caesar. And the chief priests and the scribes knew that. They were the very ones who sent spies to trap Jesus in this very point. And so the sinister thing is that these leaders are the ones misleading the nation. And they are the ones misleading Pilate. Pilate himself didn't pay much attention to the first two charges, it seems. But then there was a third one. Jesus claiming to be a Christ, and that captured his attention. And so, Pilate turned to the Lord Jesus and asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Most likely, Pilate took one look at Jesus and thought this was a joke of some kind. But after Christ's somewhat cryptic answer, you have said so, Pilate then gave his first pronouncement. I find no guilt in this man. And the pronouncement of Pilate is vital. This is an earthly judge. This is the highest civil authority in the land of Israel at this time. This means that Pilate, as Romans 13 teaches us, is God's representative on earth for administering justice. And so his judgment matters here. And Pilate judged rightly, and his right judgment carries the weight of divine justice. But as we see from this text, that's not the only judgment given. When Pilate heard that Jesus fell under Herod's jurisdiction, uh, he shuffled them off to Herod, who is in Jerusalem for the Passover. It appears that Pilate didn't really want to deal with this problem and also the the Jewish leaders in front of him, so he conveniently um, sent him over to Herod. And this is the second judge to examine Christ. 
Now, Herod, of course, had other things in mind. He had heard about Jesus before, most likely through John the Baptist and others. And he wanted to see Jesus perform some kind of miracle. But after examining Christ at length and receiving no answers in return, Herod simply returned him back to Pilate. And he came to the same conclusion as Pilate had. So we have two judges, the testimony of two witnesses, the judgment of two judges. They've come to the same judgment about Jesus. He has done nothing deserving of death. And it's interesting to know these two judges, Pilate and Herod, uh, they didn't see eye to eye on so many other things. The text says before this they were enemies. You would think they would uh, come to maybe different conclusions. There was one thing they did agree on. Christ Jesus was not guilty. And so when Pilate received Christ back, he called together the chief priests, the scribes, and the people. He stated his judgment like this, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, and neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. So to summarize the trial so far, the charges don't fit. Pilate must acquit. That should be the judgment. But we must see also more than that. Remember, the Jewish leaders, they wanted nothing more than to have Jesus crucified. And so they had to do everything in their power to convince Pilate that Jesus was guilty and he deserved to die. And so that meant bringing their strongest case against Christ. And yet these flimsy charges are the best they have. It's because they could not find anything. And Pilate could tell quite quickly, without a doubt, that Jesus did not deserve to die. That's because there was nothing, absolutely nothing they could bring against our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was without sin. He wasn't only guiltless of these charges at this trial, He was guiltless of any charges of law-breaking and sin. No judge anywhere at any time could convict Christ of any crime. He never transgressed God's law even once. He never failed to do the things God required of him. He never had even one wrong thought or desire. So this is evidence number one 
proving that Jesus is the Christ. That's because he's the righteous one. And the Messiah who was going to come was going to be the righteous one. Listen to Jeremiah 23, verse 5 on this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Jesus was without sin. He is this righteous branch. So Jesus is the Christ. That brings us to the second point. Now, when you examine uh, the actions of the chief priests and the scribes, a couple of things stand out. And both of them have to do with their words, how, how they talk. Uh, first, there is their lying tongues. They claim that Christ forbade paying taxes to Caesar. It was a bold-faced lie. The second thing that stands out is their accusing language, their accusing tone. Verse 2, they began to accuse Jesus. Verse 5, they were urgent in bringing their accusations. And verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And both of these things show that the Jewish leaders are speaking with the devil's breath. The devil is a liar. When he lies, he speaks his native language. The chief priests here are speaking Satan's language. The devil also loves to accuse. That's his trademark. In fact, he does this so much that he is called the accuser. And so the Jewish leaders, they take over the devil's trademark talk at this trial, vehemently accusing the Lord Jesus. But the amazing thing is, this evidence also confirms that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. It's because they show something of Christ's work of high priest. We're going to explain how this works. You see, when we see this, when we, when we understand how much these dynamics at Jesus' trial match, or we see this, sorry, when we understand how much these dynamics at Jesus' trial match our Old Testament reading from Zechariah 3. We read from Zechariah 3. Look at what happens there. In his vision, Zechariah saw Joshua, the high priest. Right here, I'll point out that Jesus is actually the, the New Testament version of the name Joshua. So Joshua, the high priest from Zechariah 3, and Jesus from Luke 23, they have the same name. I think that is significant right there already. Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and what else does he see? He sees Satan standing uh, at his right hand to accuse him. And Joshua, in Zechariah 3, like Jesus, remains silent the entire time. Accusation after accusation fired his way. However, there's one key difference between Joshua and Jesus Christ. 
The Lord Jesus, of course, was innocent of every accusation thrown his way. The same thing can't be said of Joshua, the high priest. In fact, the, op- the accusations are true. Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments representing his sin. And so, yes, he is guilty. The accusations are true. But there's one important dif- another important difference in these two scenes. In Zechariah 3, the Lord intercedes for Joshua despite his sin. In fact, Joshua's accuser is rebuked and silenced. Verse 2 says, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a burning stick plucked from the fire? When you look at Jesus Christ, things are completely different. No one intercedes for him. No one rebukes his accusers. And how much more that should have happened for our Lord Jesus Christ. He was not guilty. He was the sinless one. The accusations are false. But heaven is silent. As Jesus stands there and he is accused of all these crimes. He remains all on his own. And his accusers have their way with him. You see, the Old Testament Joshua, he deserved to die. But the New Testament Joshua didn't. That burning stick, the Old Testament Joshua, he deserved the fire of hell. He was graciously snatched from that fire by the hand of God. The same thing can't be said of Jesus. Remember Jeremiah 23, Christ wasn't a burning stick like Joshua. He was the righteous branch. He didn't deserve to die, but he did. He didn't deserve the judgment of hell, but that's what he got. On the cross, Christ died the death of someone under the curse of God. Why did these things happen to Jesus? And why in this way, with such a contrast to Joshua the high priest from Zechariah 3? Well, it's because Christ wrote his trial and all the way to the cross was acting as our great high priest. As our high priest, he was standing in our place. He was taking our punishment for us. That's why heaven remains silent. 1 Peter 3 puts it so well when it says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And we see that in Jesus' trial. Here he is, suffering for our sins 
taking those accusations that he didn't deserve, the righteous for the unrighteous. And heaven was silent as the devil's henchman accused his sinless son. And why was heaven silent? So that Christ, by suffering for sin in our place, might bring us to God. He might bring us to God. We must remember this also when Satan accuses us for our sins. Or he will. He will accuse you. You can count on that. He is the accuser after all. When he accuses you for your sins, he might be right in his accusation. But remember the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ. There Jesus stood silently as his adversaries accused him vehemently. And he did that so that Satan's accusations against you would be rendered useless. We, like Joshua, have those filthy garments of sin. And so we might feel the pinch of those accusations. That's what Satan wants. But we look to Christ. We fix our eyes on his sacrifice on the cross. For through Christ's blood, those, those dirty clothes of sin, they are removed from us. We're cleansed from our guilt, cleansed from our sins. In the face of his accusers, Christ remained silent. No one interceded for him. But he also did this, so that through his saving work, he would speak for us. He will intercede before his Father's throne, even when the devil accuses us of our sins. That brings us to our final point. Now, back in point number one, we saw how Jesus was declared not guilty of all the accusations brought against him. Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. However, there is one sense in which Christ was uh, guilty as charged. The Jewish leaders accused Jesus of saying that he himself was Christ, a king. And to this we can say amen to that. Uh, This is what Jesus is, guilty as charged. Of course, what the chief priests were getting at was that the Lord Jesus was guilty of some sort of treason against Caesar, and that's what they wanted Pilate uh, to believe. You know, if Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, he was making a claim to kingship and Rome did not tolerate any rivals. Pilate, as the Roman governor, he wouldn't tolerate that either. And that's why Pilate, in a way, was, or Jesus, in a way, or Pilate, in a way, was forced to question the Lord Jesus about this. You know, are you the king of the Jews? One look told him that Jesus was not running some kind of treasonous campaign, but he asked anyways, You know, are you the king of the Jews? Christ said in reply, you have said so, or you yourself have said it. Now, that response from our Lord Jesus might sound a bit strange. Why so ambiguous? Well, I like the response of 
explanation of one commentator. Jesus couldn't deny that he was the king of the Jews. That was what he was. But Pilate's understanding of Jesus' kingship would not match with reality, what the king of the Jews meant, the Christ. If Jesus gave a blatant yes, it surely would have been given Pilate the wrong idea. He would have just thought of a, a political person in Israel. But Jesus couldn't deny it either, so he gave this answer. That might be the best explanation. But in any case, Jesus was indeed the Christ, the King of the Jews. And it must be said again that the events and evidence at Jesus' trial prove this. It points us to this reality. I think of Psalm 2, which we sang earlier. Psalm 2 prophesies about the coming Christ. And Psalm 2 begins with these questions. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Or as we could translate it, against the Lord and against his Christ. And that language of Psalm 2 and the details of Jesus' trial, they, they match. Here we have the peoples plotting against Christ against Jesus. We have the rulers, Pilate and Herod, taking counsel together against the Lord's anointed. And we have hints of these verses of Psalm 2 in Luke 23, verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. It's echoing Psalm 2. This connection is confirmed in Acts chapter 4. In Acts 4, the Christians are praying to God. In their prayer, they quote the opening verses of Psalm 2, and then they apply them to the trial of Christ, saying, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So in Acts 4, the Christians applied Psalm 2 to the trial of Jesus Christ. The peoples are plotting against the anointed one, the Christ. And so the fulfillment of Psalm 2, the trial of Jesus, approves that Jesus is the Christ. This was prophesied. And it would happen this way to the Christ, and they are unwittingly fulfilling that prophecy. Words spoken about the Christ and his enemies in Psalm 2 are on display in Luke 23. The people setting themselves against Jesus, together with the rulers. This is further confirmed by a connection to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, God promised to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And those who belong to the seed of the serpent would be united in their hostility towards the seed of the woman, especially the Christ, the coming Christ. We see that here too. Herod and Pilate, they became friends with each other that very day. The text says, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. 
But now they become united in their refusal to believe in Jesus Christ. Now there was enmity between them and Jesus, the seed of the woman. We can also find evidence that Jesus is the promised Christ through his silence. You see, no one really recognized Jesus as king. Religious leaders, they brought this charge against Jesus. He's claiming to be a king, but it's clear they didn't really believe that he was the Christ. Pilate clearly didn't believe Jesus was a king either. Took him about 15 seconds to decide that. Herod, too, obviously didn't believe Jesus was any sort of king. Christ remained silent before him. Herod and his soldiers began to mock him. They dressed him up in royal clothing to laugh at him, to say, Ha ha, what kind of king are you? But the reason they failed to recognize Jesus' kingship was because their thinking was backwards. They didn't understand Jesus' mission as king. They only thought of kings as rich and powerful people who control people by force. They could not see how such an unimpressive, silent man, this Jesus person before them, could ever be a king. But this description of Jesus is the perfect description of the Christ. Christ came as king not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came as the humble king. He came as the servant king. In fact, he came as a servant of the Lord as described by the Isaiah the prophet. For Jesus, his kingship be one of suffering on earth. Suffering servant of Isaiah 53 prophesies about the coming Christ. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. And this is exactly what happened at Jesus' trial. He was rejected by men. They saw no majesty in him. He remained silent. It proves to us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. He is the King of kings. So many people in our text slept him off as a nobody. They mocked him. They hated him. The important thing is, what will it be for us? What will it be for you? It's an important question. It could be that Someone might make the same mistake as someone like Herod in our text. See, King Herod had heard the preaching of John the Baptist many times. In fact, it 
It even says that he liked to listen to him. But during all that time, Herod never turned to God. Instead, he hearted himself in sin and unbelief. Now, when the Savior of the world stood before him, all he can do is mock the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless he repented before he died, Herod would be one of those kings described in Psalm 2, who do not kiss the Son, do not serve the Lord with fear, and then experience the wrath of the Christ. May that never happen to us, that we harden our hearts like someone like Herod, who heard so much preaching from John the Baptist, but turned his his heart away from God's Word. So he turned his heart away from Christ. Those are the words of warning, but Psalm 2 ends with a blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And may that be each of us. Take refuge in Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. Come to Him for salvation. And you will find a gracious King. For He is a sinless Savior. He is a great High Priest. And He is our eternal King who suffered and died in our place. Amen. Let's respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing hymn 25, verses 4 and 5.